Oh, you've got to look nice because Auntie Jean's coming. Hey guys, welcome to Must See a Man About a Dog podcast, where I chat to people about anything but platitudes. It's a huge shit sandwich and we're all gonna have to take a bite. On this episode, we have three fascinating people, and every time I speak with them, I literally feel like they're developing my brain cells. Come again. First up, we have Georgia Williams, who's a researcher of gender and sexuality, specialising in non-cisgender identities from a transnational perspective. Joining Georgia is Sam Dalzell, a judicial clerk by day and an ADHD advocate, well, by day as well as night. Completing the crew is James Harbour, the founder of Who Shot the Photographer and one of the top 10 wedding photographers in Canberra, Australia. He's a big advocate on same-sex marriages and rethinking wedding traditions. My name is Alisa and I'm your host. Now, let me set the scene. It is currently 7.44am in the UK. Uh, Now, when I initially thought of starting a podcast, I really did not envisage having to get up this early. I mean, I'm currently furloughed during a lockdown. What are you playing at, guys? I mean, James, uh, you're one of the culprits. You live in Australia. <laughs> and right now it's uh, 4.44 in the afternoon where you are. Yeah, that's right. I've kind of won out here, I think. I think I'm, I'm one of the luckier ones. Enjoying a nice cold beer right now. <laughs> Look, it's freezing. It's freezing here in Canberra. I wish it was a beer, but um, I've got to go for a run later, so I'm trying to be responsible. It's a coffee, so I'm like joining you guys. I'm getting on your wavelength. Now, the second culprit here is Sam. Now, you're one of the few lucky Britons uh, who are not furloughed at the moment, and you'll be starting to work in about an hour. Yeah, I've got the. I've had the joy of working in the courts that just. They seem to want to continue churning through all this time, which does make sense, because especially being a family court. So, yeah, sorry for getting you up early. What's it like knowing what day of the week it is? Yeah, I seem to take that for granted. There's a bit of me that likes to do the English thing of moaning like, oh, work. But actually, I'm incredibly thankful that I keep having something to do and get up for, because I would be more than climbing the walls by this point. And Georgia, how's the lockdown treating you? Don't even get me started. Good God. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I've definitely been climbing the walls since I got back. Um, Yeah, landed back in the country after five months of traveling uh, a week and a half before lockdown. was very excited to sort out uh, a new job and sort somewhere to live uh, following the the research trip. But um, something tells me that's probably not going to be happening anytime soon. Well, thank you all for joining me this morning. Now, Sam, you are looking into applying to do a PhD to progress your research into attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah, I want to be doing it from the angle of phenomenology, which is basically uh, a European philosophy that looks at a concept known as embodiment. So instead of us being a brain in a vat or consciousness in a vat, it's more like your body and behaviour is situated in an environment or a phenomenal space, which allows behaviour to sort of manifest itself as a response to the environment. So my thesis would be trying to look at that, particularly with ADHD as the main behavioural focus instead of just behaviour in general. And what made you look into that? I think probably slight egoism because I have ADHD and I didn't really understand it. And then I got diagnosed and I realised no one understood it because they couldn't seem to answer the most basic of questions. And that just really irritated me. And the more I looked into it, the more I found... No one seems to have any idea 
what it actually is, even though it's one of the oldest diagnosed developmental disorders. And I find that really annoying, especially when I'm the one with the diagnosis, because you go to ask a question like, why do I keep doing this? And they're like, oh, I don't really know. Probably something with dopamine. It's just, it's, I find it bizarre because it's quite a well-known disorder, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that there's not much research done on that. Well, there is research. It's more that it's done from almost a, a fallacious standpoint. They'll start with a behavioural idea and then they'll test it. Like in the 50s, George Bradley discovered that giving kids Benzedrine stops their behaviour, but he didn't, or stops the inattentive and hyperactive behaviours. But he didn't notice this because he was looking to stop them. He gave them these pills because they had headaches after he dry, uh, drained spinal fluid. So he gave them stimulants for headaches and then thought, oh, oh, there's a certain portion of kids that are responding really well. And then he just spent the next 10 years testing it. And now stimulant medication is still given, but they don't know how it works. They just know that it works. Wow. It's very interesting because I've heard that um, I've got a friend who's got borderline personality disorder. And like, it's one of those things where there's just there's so many things where people don't know what it is like the research isn't there and it's like you say like with adhd like a lot of people know about it but it's incredible how like the funding just isn't there and the research like isn't being done there yeah no entirely i think a lot of mental health suffers with it as well like my girlfriend's got bipolar type 2 and it's exactly the same whenever she's been to the doctor the one thing they seem to really care about is are you suicidal yes or no that that's as if that's make or break point which something as complex as an emotional disorder it's just, it's just not that 2D. I think also, um, if you don't mind me interjecting, I think there's a problem with the inherent pathologization of these things, that I think well-being and quality of life for the longest time haven't been considered in the research because it's always been, well, how can we get this person to a point where they're productive within society? You know, how can they, they contribute in a very kind of innately capitalistic sense instead of actually looking at the mechanism behind what's causing a particular condition and understanding how that individual's life can be improved through therapeutic methods. It's as if they sort of don't care for that bit. They they look at us as already a preconceived problem. That's even the thing itself is that sometimes being ADHD isn't a problem. Sometimes it's a really good advantage. But as you said, the inherent pathologization of it basically means, oh, well, I'm telling you it's a problem. And if it's not a problem, then it might not be ADHD, which it, it, even that you're like why is that inherent thought there why is it that as part of this diagnosis that almost ontological status is put on my head for no good reason when it's not even applicable but just because some psychiatrist said it is and that's why I think philosophy particularly has an interesting aspect on it because I will be looking at sort of like the inherent ideals behind objectivity that underrides the, vali the validity of the research and to basically show that science probably isn't the best one to be giving straight diagnosis without fully having thought about it. Now, Georgia, you are commencing a PhD study in the new academic year. Well, I mean, <laughs> if I can, if yeah, I mean, if I can financially manage it. Unfortunately, I was um, due to be teaching a summer school this year, which I found out as of this morning has been cancelled. No surprises there. Um, which was my main source of income for funding the PhD. But I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I still have the place. But no, my PhD is at University College Dublin. It's a PhD in social justice. Uh, so I'm a researcher of gender and sexuality, specifically from a intersectional feminist methodological standpoint. Can you tell us a bit about that, how you got into that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm probably in the same boat as Sam here with it being somewhat egotistical. I like to joke that I'm professionally queer, but what it actually stems from is that uh, when I was 15 years old, I came out about my sexuality 
to my mother at the time. Um, and I was all but disowned for that. And it was a very difficult experience. It was quite a traumatic experience. Um, but it became this source of motivation for me and my career. I became interested in gender and sexuality initially from a psychological standpoint, and then I moved into interdisciplinary methods, looking at uh, LGBTQ plus welfare and well-being around the world, the state of the legislation surrounding that, not just in developing countries, but here in the UK as well. And these days, I my area of expertise is non-cisgender identities from a transnational standpoint. So non-cisgender denoting any individual that doesn't identify with their assigned gender at birth. Do you think that idea of sexual identity is still quite archaic all around the world and that perhaps people don't quite understand what sexual identity means? Absolutely. It's funny, I often get questions from individuals asking what the perspectives are on these things in other countries that I've gone to, especially countries in in the global south um, or close to the equator. And actually, I find that some of the most archaic perspectives still persist uh, here in the UK and in the US. And it's uh, it's definitely frustrating. I think there is, by and large, a social movement towards kind of inclusivity and open mindedness regarding gender and sexuality. But a lot of very archaic and kind of atavistic ideas about these concepts, are, they, they're still pervasive. Um, within general society we're meant to be developed countries here (laughs) (laughs) well I think well I think that's a wee bit of a colonialist perspective if we're being honest but I mean yeah I think even in this country there's issues with the fact that we don't have LGBTQ plus inclusive sex education in schools I mean not across the board Um, and we don't have proper gender inclusive education in schools either so there are a lot of misconceptions One of the points I always like to argue about is that, you know, we're still at a point within especially UK kind of culture where this idea of the gender binary is still persistent. And I often have to say to people, we're teaching that when we don't even acknowledge that there isn't even a sex binary. We're talking about intersex individuals. That's 1.7% of a global population. That's one in 100 people that aren't biologically male or female. Just to sort of to, to give a perspective, um, it's similar to the amount of uh, people who are ginger in comparison to brunettes and blondes. Yes, exactly. If you've met a redheaded person, you've also met an intersex person. I think there needs to be like definitely more of that represented in society and like schools and stuff like that because yeah it's like such a huge thing i mean like i'm 33 now and i'm pretty tuned into all this stuff i think but it's amazing how you know i've had to learn it all on my own you know we're getting so progressive now hopefully that you know people should be teaching it in schools you know we teach sex education how to put the condom on the banana but then we're not even going into these things about how a person identifies as their you know their sexual self and just lots of other different things are. i think it's just a really important thing yeah, I think it's great you do that. Oh, thank you so much, James. I mean, it's it's definitely an uphill battle. And it's not because of the students, you know. I I have taught students of various ages on this subject. It tends to be that the, the individuals that are the most uncomfortable are parents and teachers because of the misconceptions surrounding the subject. I mean, just looking at sexuality, back when I was in high school, you know, I, I left high school in 2013. And... I would have friends who who were lesbians who were saying, well, I'm not I'm not going to the sex ed talk because there's no point because it isn't relevant to me. And that's just sexuality. If we're looking at at gender and kind of questions of of bodily autonomy and consent, um, there's so many kind of untouched subjects there. This information is all out there. But you have to know where to look to find it. And I think that's the problem is that these conversations are only being had in the kind of upper echelons of kind of queer elitist academia. 
yes, it's simply not a topic that makes it on the six o'clock news. Mainstream media does love a good wedding, though. James, you're a wedding photographer. Can you give us an insight into your world? Yeah, totally. So, uh, so I'm as you say, I'm a wedding and elopement photographer based in Canberra, um, in Australia. My my whole thing is, it's I believe that people can, um, you know, we don't have to do things the traditional way. I think far too often people just kind of think, yeah, you know, we need to have the white dress, we need to have, um, you know, the big church wedding. You know, we need to spend, you know, sixty thousand dollars on a wedding because that's what we should do. And I really like to just be a very vocal voice for for that kind of to turn things on the head. And I feel that too often people just get funneled into this into this wedding, which they don't really care about. And then they do it and then they come the other side and they're, you know, up to their knees in debt. And all they do is spend the rest of their lives repaying that debt for kind of one day when, you know, my whole thing is turning that on its side. And one of the big new things um, which is catching on at the moment are elopements. Now, an elopement isn't where it's not the old traditional thing where it's like you're going to, you know, run off and you're going to leave everyone behind and you're not going to tell anyone about it. But it's more about having a more concise thought process to what you guys want to do. So it's like, you know, if you want to get married, like, why don't you just go off to like New Zealand um, for a week traveling and then have a small ceremony out there? You know, why don't you, you know, maybe you want to go climb up the top of a mountain and do it at the top of the of a mountain whilst the sun's setting with some beers? Like, you can do that. Like a lot of the time, you get big weddings where people invite like three hundred guests. You know, you don't really care about. Like, you hardly see like about two hundred and thirty of them. Like you hardly ever see them, but you're spending like $170 per head per person and you're doing it, you know, all for kind of show. And yet again, my whole thing is really empowering people to to realize that it's good if you prefer to have experiences over things. I was just thinking, well, marriage as an institution, good old marriage, it was less for the the people and more for the family. Like the bride was the typical object that was exchanged between families do you think that that sort of notion has kept on a bit and that the reason, because all this stress and pomp and circumstance, I remember when my sister got married, she really went for that pomp and circumstance first time round and ended up regretting it. And I think to a point it was because, yes, she was getting married, but it's it was as if that day was actually not for her. It was for everyone else. And I've wondered if that is the case with weddings. Yeah, dude, you hit the nail on the head, mate. Seriously, that's what like, that's what happens every time. It's like, you know, mum comes in, she's like, oh, you've got to look nice because Auntie Jean's coming. And it's like, you don't care about Auntie Jean, all right? Like, you haven't seen Auntie Jean to, like, ages and stuff like that. Like, why are you catering to her? I don't know. You're, you're right, though. And, and like, don't get me wrong. Yeah, again, I like to preface as saying I'm razzing. I'm going to, like, I like razzing on these traditions. I do like calling them out. It doesn't mean that if people do them with me that I don't think it's cool. Like, you do your wedding your way. That's, like, what I'm all about. I'm just about empowering people. Dude, you could dress up in a frigging clown costume like walk around a lake backwards and friggin' sing Queen and then get married and then go and let off a firework somewhere and drink some whiskey. You can do it however you want. And I'm really hoping this whole, you know, thing with the coronavirus is making people realize because in Australia, you can still get married here, but you, you can only have five guests. So basically, you can only have an elopement. And I'm and I feel like it's it's definitely like driving more people are being like, hey, man, do I really need to spend like a like a house deposit on one day or would I rather spend a fifth of that price on a week traveling around like, you know, my favorite part of France or Germany 
and get married on one of the days and have a blast the rest of it. Colour me converted. And James, you don't um, actually just take photographs of people. You actually help them plan their whole day. Yeah, so the big thing with me basically is, you know, I really do like to take a bit of a leading role when it comes to actually uh, setting up wedding days and elopements for couples. So I think because a lot of, a lot of the big things with elopements is that the idea of it sounds great and even your wedding as well. But too often, I just find so many couples are kind of really inundated with the stress of, you know, what are we going to do about locations? What time of day? You know, we don't know. We don't really know anything about photography. And, you know, I believe in really creating the most stress-free experience to people possible because I know if it was me hiring somebody I probably would want someone to kind of do the heavy lifting for me especially if I didn't know what I was doing and it can be something as simple as saying hey man you know where is your favorite place in the world what kind of thing would you guys like to do so let's say for example someone's like well do you know what? we love going skiing we love kind of our winter sports we love going out into snow and you know and then I'd say right okay well there's a few different options there. For example, um, you could go to Europe. You could go somewhere like Courchevel. You could have like a skiing holiday, and you can elope like you know you can elope up a ski slope. For example, you could do something like that. Um, next thing is kind of working out the time of day and the location as well, because it might be great saying, well, we want to go to Courchevel. We might want to get married at the top of a ski slope, but which one? What time of day? What works best? And one of the big things I do is I actually get into like Google Earth. Um, I even use Google Earth virtual reality as well to really get in there. It's pretty it's pretty cool it's pretty bizarre um actually kind of really getting in there and, uh, and and really getting an understanding of how the light falls as well i like to offer this um offer this really personalized service because i totally get that it can be really really daunting i think for some couples to kind of look at it and say we want to do this but we don't know how and i just try to make that easy for everybody that's really interesting it really is another level of define expectations i think and talking about define expectations sam you have adhd but your full-time employment is being a judicial clerk. Yeah, I work with circuit judges and district judges. Now, symptoms of ADHD are normally hyperactivity and inattentiveness. But you currently spend days on end in courtrooms, in formal and procedural surroundings. Can we get an insight into your daily life? Do you love your job? I, I actually do love my job, but mainly because it's, it is paper pushing, but it's the glorified paper pushing. Well, when there are parties actually at court, which at the moment there aren't, um, I get to speak to them. I'm the one who ushers the cases. I liaise to the judge the readiness of the case, which means I have an effect over the order, which it's a small detail, but I don't know. It's those bits of control over a situation that you're like, yes, I actually feel important to the situation not I'm not just passing one piece of paper from one hand to the next the problem is though yeah when it's the cases that go on for days and days and that's normally I have little strategies on how to do my work for about an hour and a half I think about an hour and a half and I start to lose my mind but you're allowed one rest break so I will leave the courtroom pick up all the printing I need to do do everything I need to do which means I can be out for about 10 minutes and then I can be back in which is minimal disruption and all the judges I sit with know I have ADHD and I have not had a concern from any of them about that as long as you don't leave the room when they're doing judgment you're fine. Did you have to tell your employees that you have ADHD at the interview or was that something that came out organically once you started? I had to tell them and then they sent me off to an occupational therapist I was medicated I had no need for an occupational therapist but they sent me to one anyway uh, who basically said, I can't remember, it was hilarious, it was an utter waste of time. He said that he had to give them advice, but the only advice he could give them was to ask me how I'm doing, because I seem to know 
sort of my state. I know when I'm doing badly and when I'm doing well. And I, I was like, yeah, I, thank you for that. I could have told you that to begin with. Um, but then when I got to court, and this is classic HMCTS, they didn't know for months I actually had ADHD until I mentioned it to my team leader and her jaw hit the floor because she was like, oh, I should know this, but I don't. So I had to send her my diagnosis and all that. It didn't really concern me because I'm my own sort of advocate. Like I will go to a judge and say, I have ADHD, especially more if it's a wobbly day. I won't just walk in the door and declare it. Address the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, knock in. Court rise, I have ADHD. Um, but no, I'm normally addressed, especially if it's a bit busy or if I think I might forget something. Last time we spoke, you told me a story about a lady with bipolar who represented herself in court. Now, being a law student myself, I am a big advocate for people having legal representation, access and cost aside. Um, but you witnessed the opposite of that. Can you tell us a bit about this experience? Yes, yeah, it's, it's such a lovely story because a lot of the time in court, you don't get lovely stories, especially in family court. But this was um, a case I didn't get to see a lot of it. But I got to see the final hearing and it was a woman with type 2 bipolar, so hypomanic. And she was going to become the special guardian, which is effectively you get parental responsibility. You are in, acknowledged as a half parent, but not full, but three quarters of the way there. And she was going having to jump through hoops. And in court, sometimes, as I'm sure Elisa is aware, mental health can still be something that if you're if you're in a opposition to they will drag on traditional arguments and this woman just trailed through all the dumb questions that were thrown at her with grace like there was one that really stuck out in my head because i thought this lawyer was he clicked on something archaic and ended up looking a bit like an idiot but she mentioned that she meditates and immediately you think candles all around you well actually no we might not but this lawyer definitely did candles all around her and like meditating, umming for 20 minutes. And he was like, well, how looking after a newborn baby could you propose to meditate and keep your control and make sure that your emotions don't becoming dysregulated just without skipping a beat? She was like, well, meditating isn't just sitting there. I could be on the bus looking out the window and that's a form of meditation. I could be walking to the bathroom, counting things in my head. That's meditation. Meditation is any moment where you need a bit of clarity. And I, I almost yelled out, yes, because I just thought that is exactly the perspective you need to be showing. And the judge, even at the end, she said to me afterwards that that was the best evidence she'd ever seen a litigant in person give because there was just no trick worked on her. She represented herself and she completely dominated. It was brilliant. And she got the special guardianship order without qualm. That's awesome. That's so cool to hear because, yeah, I, I've studied a bit of meditation as well. And like, yeah, it's it's so much more than just that concept of like, oh, you know, you're sitting in a room going, um, you know, hopefully people are opening their eyes a bit more up and kind of getting a bit more realistic about what different things people can do to kind of help um, calm their mental health and stuff like that. I think that's great. Even for me, my form, of, it's not really a form of meditation, but like I need to walk like I can't sit down. I've tried uh, Zen meditation when I was in Hong Kong and it was great but also horrible at the same time because I was just sat there for an hour and I thought I was going to explode. But if I walk around by myself, and particularly the bit where if I see a road, I'll just walk down it. So I end up getting lost. That to me is a particular form of meditation because I have no idea what's going on in front of me. I'm always stuck around looking at houses, looking at if I see something in someone's window, just like, oh, what's that? Deliberately for me, it has to, it's somewhat meditative 
to just be sucked out of the environment and more floating around looking at what's going on. But I have to be moving for that. That's the particular thing I've noticed. If I've sat down, I'm just twitching my legs and arms and I just, I can't focus my head. If I'm walking anywhere, I can suddenly feel like I can almost think in a straight line. Do you know, I can totally relate to that. There's something about walking in the countryside or getting lost in the city that gives me clarity. And in a way, it's similar to traveling um, and opening yourself to new experiences. I know, Georgia, you've recently returned from traveling uh, where you emerged yourself in LGBTQ plus communities in, in various parts of the world. Indonesia being one of the countries you've visited. Now, I don't know if... Uh, People are aware, but Indonesia is largely a Muslim country. And there's a stereotypical consensus that as a religion, it is very conservative. How does transgender fit into all of this? Um, so that's a complex question. I mean, so there's not just LGBTQ plus communities in Indonesia. Um, there's also what we would call gender and, and sexuality variant communities, because LGBTQ plus is, um, is an acronym that's come over from the West. It's It's based on English language, and it kind of denotes identities that that some of them do exist in Indonesia, but there's identities outside of that that are gender and sexuality variant. They, there's different language for those terms. I was yeah, I was in Indonesia for a month, um, and I, I know a wee bit about Indonesian culture from my, my master's studies, but you're right, it is a it is a predominantly Muslim country, but Islam in Indonesia is not the same as Islam in, say, the Middle East or even what we would consider it to be here in the UK or in the US. The way that Islam is practiced in Indonesia, um, it has incorporated a lot of the kind of uh, spiritual elements of other um, religious practices and beliefs that existed within Indonesia before Islam became the kind of predominant religion. But there are specific identities in Indonesian culture that we don't have over here. One of them is Wariya. And uh, Wariya are a third gender in Indonesian kind of culture. They're found across Indonesia. Uh, the community that I was working with were in Yogyakarta on the island of Java. Now, Wariya, they're similar to transgender women, but not the same. Now, around the world, there are over 26 different terms for what we would consider transgender. But the reason why we can't just use one term is because the parameters within which we de define maleness and femaleness and masculinity and femininity are different cross-culturally. So Wariya are kind of like trans women, but they're more considered outside of that gender binary entirely. So they are predominantly assigned male at birth, and they will be individuals that present in a, uh, a feminine manner. But Wariya have been around for a, a huge part of Indonesian history. So do warriors hold the same status in Indonesian society um, as those who are male or female? Are warriors accepted? For the longest time, you know, warrior were accepted. And now there's a problem with the fact that the term LGBT is being used as kind of an umbrella under which warrior falls. And so because a lot of fundamentalists are saying, oh, this is, a, this is an import from the West, this is an Indonesian culture... They're arguing that Wariya now no longer belong within Indonesian society. I was working with Shinta Ratri, who is probably the most prominent Wariya activist in Indonesia. She runs a uh, boarding school in Yogyakarta for Wariya and trans women. And it's a boarding school because individuals go there to study Islam. Many Wariya will have 
being disowned by their families, may no longer be able to practice their religion uh, at the mosques that they previously used to. So many of these individuals need somewhere else to go. And so Shinta has made this incredible institution where Waria and trans women can study. They have a roof over their heads. They have access to things like um, healthcare. Do you think, because from what you're saying, I've never been to Indonesia and I really do need to go. Um, Do you think in England and the West, I'd say generally, we've got quite a rigid ontological idea of man and women. The ontology is rigid. You become an adult and then that's you. There was an aspect of spiritualism, it seemed, in Indonesia with ontological variants, which you think would be open armed to that sort of variance, but then apparently isn't as well. What do you think has caused the disruption? I think that predominantly it is, it's twofold. It is the impact of, of colonization and also globalization. I often explain to my students that the gender binary as a concept is a colonial export. It has made its way around the world through colonialism. And I think that has had a profound impact on Indonesian culture. Um, obviously, they were under Dutch rule until, I believe, August 1945. And the relics of, of that are still very kind of prevalent across across Indonesia, especially in the big cities like Jakarta and Yogyakarta, um, even parts of Bali. But also I think globalization is a big, big problem because of the impact of Western media that has severely impacted kind of the, the social and cultural values that exist within Indonesia. And we, we see examples of the kind of impacts of this all around the world. I mean, the impact of colonialism on on Native American culture, for example. Um, The Native Americans, well, not all of them, but predominantly the Navajo tribe, they based kind of gender identity around your occupational skills more than your biology. So if an individual who, in our terms, was assigned male at birth, but showed a particular proclivity for uh, basket weaving, that individual could either absolutely identify as a man and, and could just be a man, but also they could demonstrate that this was indicative of how they they weren't a man, actually, and that they identified in a completely different way. And the term that we use now for that is two-spirit. But the problem is, is that the, um, and it's in quotation marks, the anthropologists that decided to study this during kind of the, the colonial era were so incredibly uncomfortable with this whole concept that they basically just erased any history surrounding it. It's basically Protestantism. I find the more I look at it, this vibe of Protestantism in the West just permeates most of the awfully rigid traditional ideas. And I think um, the Protestant rigidity would have been key in, I, I say the success of colonialism, but I say that from the angle of the English would have thought it successful. I'm not saying it was successful, but they'd have been like, yes, this is working. And it was, it was working taking over lands, but it wasn't working destroying the spiritualism inherently. And I do think Protestantism sounds like it's had its mark left there. Yeah. Well, I mean, every saviour complex comes with some kind of intense extremist ideology behind it. Indeed, the world we live in today does seem to favour tunnel vision, and many turn their backs on anything that is considered to be outside the mainstream attitudes of our society. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for this morning. I know Sam has to go to work and I really don't want him to get told off by a judge. So thank you so much for joining me this morning, everybody. Thanks, Lisa. That was awesome. Yeah, thanks very much, Elisa. Thank you. Been good to chat.
And that was Georgia Williams, Sam Dalzell and James Harbour. Links to their websites and podcasts are in the description. So to sum up today's podcast, ADHD has many layers and relevant research is long overdue. Sexual identity is about more than just genitalia, and this concept has been around longer than the Western society. Large weddings are making ways for elopements, because at the end of the day, a wedding is a memory, not a commodity. But really, if there's one thing to take away from all of this, is that we should never feel pressured to conform. Oh, and don't be afraid to tell Auntie Jean to bugger off.